letter to the Hebrews this morning. If you would open your Bibles with me, please, to chapter 1. We will read again verses 5 through 14. We are almost through the first chapter, and uh, I pray that having a good handle on what we will hear in this first chapter has prepared us for what will unfold throughout the rest of the letter. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 5 through 14. Would you please stand with me one more time as we hear the Word of God. Brethren, it is the living Word of God. He has preserved it. We have it. Let us delight that we can hold it in our hands, that we can hear from our God. Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. This is God's precious word. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, And let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he saith, Who maketh his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But unto the Son, he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest, and they all shall wax old as doth a garment, and as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. But to which of the angels said he at any time, Sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? Amen. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Would you please remain standing for our morning prayer O blessed God, how we praise thy name. Thou art seated in heaven. Thou art ruling in splendor and majesty and holiness. All of heaven, all the citizens, beasts, elders, angels and saints, all of their Voices, their perfected voices, cry out thy holiness. And we stand before thee as well. 
Father, we still have the anchor of our flesh holding us back. There's no good thing in our flesh. Thou hast made that clear. And yet, even as we struggle with this flesh, thou hast given us a new heart. Thou hast given us life. Thou hast made us new creatures. And we praise thee for it. Thou hast given us new hearts that desire thee, that desire thy word, that desire thy son, that desire thy spirit. And oh God, how our hearts should beat together as one. Lord, I pray that that holy oneness, that holy unity that thou didst pray for us, that we would taste of it today. May our hearts rise up, whatever our state, whatever our feelings tell us. May our hearts rise up to glorify thee. Oh, please, my Father, blessed Son and Holy Spirit, make thy presence known this morning. Father, may the lost know something of that awesome holiness. May they know something of the drawing power of thy word, thy truth, thy gospel. Father, may all the lost ones here know, may they come to a clear, unchangeable understanding that Jesus saves all those who come to him in repentance and faith. And thy people, Lord, thy precious people, thy eternally loved people, here they are. Some could not be with us today. Some will not be able to join us over the internet. But Father, here, make thy presence known. Father, thou didst give thy son to save, cleanse, and perfect these people. Bless them today. May all of thy children leave this building knowing that thou hast blessed and encouraged them. All blessings of God come down. Come down. Visit us, O Spirit of Christ. And now, Lord, we come to thy holy word. And I pray with all mine heart. And I trust all thy children here. Unite with me. As we plead. Send thy spirit. Open our eyes and ears. Fill our hearts with light. That we might hear. Receive. And live in thy word. And we pray it. That Christ might be exalted now and forever. We pray it in his name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated.
in the last three messages of this series, we have considered several weighty, high, and holy subjects regarding Jesus Christ, the God-man. The Holy Spirit, through the author of Hebrews, describes the glory and the beauty of the Son of God to reveal that He is greater than the angels. In verse 7, we learn that God's holy angels are spirit beings, dazzling, immaterial, heavenly beings. And God speaks of them as His ministers, His ministers of flaming fire. But as beautiful, magnificent, powerful, and mysterious as angels are, they are creatures that cannot compare with God's Son. So the Holy Spirit gives us a striking contrast between the angels and the Son. In verse 8, the author applies Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7 to the Son. Now we must let that sink in. God addresses His Son as God. The wonders and mystery of the Godhead. But under the sun, he saith, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. In other words, God proclaims that his human son is also deity. Truly man, truly God in one holy person. Again, God proclaims that his son rules an everlasting and eternal righteous kingdom with that symbol, that righteous scepter. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom, says God the Father. Because the Son hath loved righteousness and hated iniquity, God the Father anointed him with the oil of gladness the Holy Spirit. Then in verses 10 through 12, the author once again plunders the treasures of the Psalms, which are full of types and prophecies of Christ. He takes Psalm 102, verses 25 through 27, which is attributed to God, and he applies it to the Son. Thou, Lord... In the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hand. In other words, the Son is the creator of the universe. That is why the angels bow before him. The Son as creator was first set forth in the exordium of this letter. That is the first four verses, if you remember. <clears throat> it says, By whom also he made the worlds, upholding all things by the word of his power. No angel could do that. 
And while the creation will perish, the sun will never change. While the sun will fold up the universe as an old garment, he will remain unchanged forever and ever and ever. In sum, the Son of God is God the Son. As God's Son, almighty creator and sustainer of all things, He is and He ever will be greater than the angels. So our message is entitled, The Righteous King's Righteous Kingdom. The Righteous King's Righteous Kingdom. And may our loving Heavenly Father fill our souls with joy unspeakable and full of glory as we consider the implications of these passages. And may the Holy Spirit kindle the fire of love. While the world uses the word love in a way that makes it shallow, and we're affected by that. The scriptures aren't tired of using it. And though we may abuse that word love, it is essential for any sense of biblical Christianity to be attached to love. Love of God, love of his people. So having drunk from the wonderful fountain of life in these profoundly beautiful passages, we will now take up where we left off and make some applications. I am always unhappy when I run out of time and I come to that place where I'm not able to do the application. So today is all applications, the ones that got cut off last time. That is why your outline probably looks a little different to you. So application number one. In light of what we have just summarized, application one is this. Jesus, our righteous king, is God's anointed one, and he anoints us. Now, rooted in verse 9, and its implications spread out widely to other scriptures. Jesus is the anointed, but in God's extraordinary grace, we are anointed as well. We are not Christ. We will never be Christ, but he's the model, and we will one day be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So, our hearts should find great courage in this fact that he is the anointed one. He is our savior and one of the gifts of his glorious grace is that he anoints us. 
our text says, Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. In the Mosaic Covenant, prophets, priests, and kings were anointed to set them apart for their service in the presence of God. Let me repeat that. In the Mosaic Covenant, under the Old Covenant, prophets, priests, and kings were all anointed to set them apart for their service in the presence of God. Each of these were a type of Christ the mediator, our prophet, priest, and king. The oil was a type of the Holy Spirit. And as Jesus, the anointed one, rules his righteous kingdom, he anoints his blood-bought people with the Spirit also. What a gift. God's Spirit. A gift from heaven for the likes of fleshy folk like you and me. As the resurrected, ascended, and seated head of the church and king of the universe, he poured out his spirit on the day of Pentecost. Peter boldly proclaimed, Peter, the former coward, is now Peter the Lionheart. That's what the Holy Spirit does. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, he says, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he hath shed forth this which ye now see and hear. The people surrounding that noisy bunch of disciples preaching and announcing Christ knew something was happening. And it's because the felt presence of God's Spirit was energizing what they were doing. We need that. We need that. For it is Christ seated at the Father's right hand that pours out the Spirit to His people. He's not stingy. We should continue like the importunate widow to knock upon God's door, to bow before His throne and say, Send your Spirit, please. We've had plenty of flesh. We want the power of God to fill our hearts, to transform our lives. No one enters the righteous kingdom of God without being born again. Jesus told Nicodemus, that religious man, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That was shocking news to this religious Jew. If anybody thought they were the people of the kingdom, 
It was the leadership of the Jews. And Jesus, the carpenter's son, is telling this highly educated man, nobody sees the kingdom of God except they've been born of God's spirit. Jesus went on. <clears throat> not only can he not see the kingdom, but a man cannot enter into the kingdom, except he's born again. When we are born of God's spirit, he takes up residence within us. If you are truly a converted person, there's one reason for it. The miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. You were targeted from heaven itself in the sights of God. And he sent that spirit to deal with your heart. You didn't figure it out. You weren't smarter than everybody around you. He opened your eyes. He opened your ears. You understood what you were. And you repented of your sins and believed on Christ. When we are born of God's Spirit, I repeat, He takes up residence within us. He doesn't pass by, give us a little bit of a gift, a, a, a spiritual electricity, and then move on. He comes. He wasn't an invited guest. He comes and He moves in and He stays. Now that's a visitor, a stranger that you want to come and live in your heart. Amen. And it is exactly what God does when we are born of His Spirit. <clears throat> and that wonderful miracle of new life that stays is what we call unction. Unction. Brethren, if God's people need anything in these days, it is unction. If pastors, preachers, teachers need anything, it is the unction of God, the power, the light of God's Spirit animating those weak and feeble bodies, stumbling over their words, but preaching God's truth that transforms. Oh, how we need that unction. It was one of the promises of the new covenant. In Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 and 27, God says, a new heart also will I give you. A new heart will I give you give you. Now listen carefully. And a new spirit will I put within you. Not simply a new heart, not simply a transformed headquarters of life, but there's a new resident and it is God's spirit. <clears throat> That is 
God's unction. The, the, the prophet goes on. He says, God says, through the prophet, I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh. If you are here this morning, if you are an unbeliever in Christ, or if you're simply encrusted with enough religion to make you feel like you're okay with God, what you need is for God to take your stony heart out and will give you an heart of flesh. Now that's Bible talk for this. The lost man's heart is hard as stone. It wants its own way. It's hardened in its own way. It walks in darkness and loves its darkness. And with that heart, you have but one expectation. And that is eternity. Eternity. Under God's damnation. That is all your life will lead to. But God promises that he will give a heart of flesh. That's a heart that responds to him. That's a, a soft heart. Not flinty. Not utterly so in love with its own will. That it wants God's will. I, the living God, will give you an heart of flesh. What a, what a gift and what a miracle. Mysterious as it may be to us. He goes on. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you. God will cause you to walk in my statutes and ye shall keep my judgments and do them. This is a promise for the new covenant. Now you need to notice. I need to take notice. We all need to let this absorb. Spiritually sink down to the very core of who and what we are. Talking about being a Christian saves no one. Why does God give a new heart so that we will walk with him? And notice what he will do. I will give you a new heart. I'm going to give you the power that created the heavens and the earth that raised Jesus from the dead as a live-in resident. And you will walk in my ways. That's why obedience doesn't save you, but it announces whether you are saved or not. You have been given everything necessary to walk with God. Everything. He didn't leave anything out. He doesn't have any stillborn children. He doesn't have any children that somehow or another have a facet of life left out of them. They love his word, they seek him in his word, and they live in his word. Or they're just talk. 
Now, John tells us in 1 John 2.20, but ye have an unction from the Holy One. He doesn't say you should have one. He doesn't say you need to try to run out and get one. He says, if you're a Christian, and that's what he's talking about, you have an unction. God has worked a miracle in your soul. The life that animates all life has taken up dwelling, abiding in you. Ye have an unction from the Holy One. This is exactly what we saw prophesied. The anointing which you have received of Him abideth in you. That's good news for God's people. Notice, He doesn't give us a nice long list of how we keep that resident in here. Now, let's be clear. We can grieve that resident We can make his power, if I can put it this way, inert in us by unrepentant sin. But he's there to bring us to repentance. We don't want to get hard and flinty like we used to be. We want to walk with a soft heart beating for Christ. That's what God has promised. Salvation, and by the way, when you take this seriously, you will see even more intensely how your flesh will fight you. You say, well, it, that sounds to me like the Christian life might be a little uncomfortable. Are we reading the same book? It's a war. You're either fighting God or fighting your sin. It's going to be a war all the time. But it's one or the other. Fighting God. Or fighting sin. And he's given you everything. Including the armor and the sword. To fight that battle. And that resident who gives you the grace and the strength to do this. Will never leave you. Now, there are times when the Lord is chastening us when it seems like he has. I'm so weak. I'm so feeble. Well, that's the point he's trying to, he's not trying, that he's getting you to. The Lord doesn't try. You know that, right? God doesn't try. He just does. You have an unction. The unction, the anointing which you have received, it abides in you. But as the same anointing teacheth you of all things and is truth and is no lie, and even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. Good news for God's people. So don't stop with the fact that God says this. Look for him to be helping you walk in his ways. He does. He does not fail us. We fail him, but he never fails us. Never. That's why he gave us that permanent resident. Let's not chase him away, so to speak. Let's not 
throw cold water, especially the cold water of love for the world. That'll quench the spirit in a hurry. <clears throat> so, it is by this new birth that Paul says that God hath translated us into the kingdom, that righteous kingdom of his dear son. Do you hear the love of God in that? It's God's love for his people. He translates us out of that wicked world, that darkness that we loved and embraced and puts us in that righteous kingdom. Glory to God. The Spirit baptizes us into Christ's body. Another miracle. We are baptized, we are immersed into the Christ body, the church. The church, if we understand it correctly, <clears throat> this is the neighborhood of the Holy Spirit. And every gathering of God's people across this world, regardless of the name on the sign outside their building, if they have one, it's the habitation of God's Spirit. And we want Him to shine forth in our lives in our singing, in our praying, in our hearing and obeying his word. For by one spirit are we all baptized into one body. You hear the oneness in that? It doesn't say five bodies. It doesn't say 2,000 bodies. There's one body. <clears throat> now, we don't see the whole body, but we see this part of it. This is the part of the body, and any local, sound local church that you're a part of, you're seeing the work of God in this world. You're seeing the habitation. You're seeing the gathering of the unctioned ones. United to him. And as Jesus is the great high priest and king, he has loved us. A love that we cannot comprehend and with what little ability we have to understand leaves us speechless. We don't deserve that kind of love. We deserve what we read in Revelation called the lake of fire. But God in his love for us shows us that his son loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. True love doesn't just be. True love works. It does something. It's active. It's transforming. God's love is a good thing. May we know it more. So he loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and hath made us kings and priests. Wait, did you hear that? We're not just poor sinners looking for bread. 
Now it's true. We are when we're lost. And then when he saves us, we are always looking for the manna from heaven. True again. But to stop there robs God of the glory of what he has made us. Kings and priests. But that should sound familiar to us. There is someone seated at the Father's right hand who is a king and a priest. In other words, we're being made like Christ. And it's our place in life to serve our God as kings and priests. Every father here, every husband here, ought to be saying, Lord, if that's what you've made me, let me manifest thy wonderful love, thy glorious grace, the beauty of thy word in my house, to my wife, to my children. I want to see your kingdom set up in my house. You get this? You should be the priest of your family, just like Job was, offering up prayers for his children. Kings and priests. Oh, we could stop, drop anchor there for a long time. <clears throat> but he has made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. How is it that we can serve God the Father? How is it that we are kings and priests in Christ's righteous kingdom? By being born again and filled with his Spirit. To have the unction. We are anointed ones. We're not little gods, as some heretically teach, but we are growing in the image of God's Son. He's the model. He's the one we should be looking at and saying, like we sing, I long to be like Jesus, the Father's holy child. If you're born of God's Spirit, there ought to be something churning in there that says, yes, that's the model. I want to be like that. Oh, kings and priests, I'm not just looking at beggars this morning. Yes, we do come in our weakness and plead with God to feed us. But we are kings and priests in his righteous kingdom. And that ought to be manifested in what we think and in what we say and in what we do. So, he hath made his kings and priests unto God and his Father, and that should lead us, that's good theology that should lead us to doxology, praise. And that's exactly what we read here. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. When we read about the great things God has done for us, there ought to be something that rebounds to God. <laughs> his, his gifts comes down, hits our hearts, and it rebounds back to him in praise. Glory to your name. Praise be thy name. Thank you, O God, for not leaving me in my dunghill. He could have just taken us out of the dunghill. But no, he said, no, I'm going to make you royal priests. You're going to serve me and you're going to serve one another. You're going to show that my kingdom of righteous robed people walk together 
and magnify me. Well, this should fill our souls with boundless joy in sadness. And we encounter sadness in this world. Sweet comfort in afflictions. Great peace in chaos. Lofty expectations in trials. So, his first application is important. Jesus, the righteous king, is God's anointed one, and he anoints us. Well, that brings us to application number two. <clears throat> Jesus, our righteous king, loves righteousness and hates evil. So should we. If we're being made in his image, if the spirit of God is a permanent resident within us, we should love what he loves, righteousness. And we should hate what he hates, evil. Here, Christ is declared to be black and white about iniquity and righteousness. If it's righteous, he loves it. If it is iniquitous, he hates it. He loves righteousness as much as he hates iniquity. In eternity before creation, the Son of God loved his Father and he loved righteousness. He's always loved righteousness because he is righteous deity. Righteous <clears throat> means right. God is rightness. He's the measure of what is right. He is the measure of what is good. It's not how I feel about the thing. It's about what God says. This is wicked. Love of the world is evil. He says it. Not me. I didn't make that up. The Son was and always will be perfect righteousness. When we see Jesus, as we read about him in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we see the perfection of what manhood in Christ ought to be. It's right there. You say, well, that, he, he's God and man. That's right. Exactly right. That's a good position to hold. However, there's a very big footnote that goes with it. When you were born of God's spirit and that resident took up residence within you, the same resident spirit dwells in the God-man without measure. We are connected to Christ. There is a sense as our representative that as he sits in glory, we sit with him. You believe that? Or do you just live down in the sewer of depression and failure? When we see our sins, we should run as fast as possible 
to Christ and say, thank you for this robe of righteousness. I've soiled it. Cleanse me. And he does. He's given us everything we need to be Christians. Well, he loves righteousness. He always has, has. He always will. He loved righteousness so much that he agreed with his father to save his people from sin so that they could be righteous. Far too often in our day, the whole idea about Jesus is that he just died on the cross so we could go to heaven. And that's about all we think about. Well, I'm going to heaven someday. Boy, that misses so much of the picture. It's scary. He saves us to be walking examples of his saving grace so that others who were lost like we were would desire to know that Christ, the Christ that gives us his righteousness to stand before God. What? We're going to get in the next chapter, but this is so great salvation. So great. That little adverb, so, says it all. So great. As the eternal son made flesh, he loved his father and he loved his righteous laws. He didn't say, oh, the chains of legalism. He wants me to keep his law. He delighted. He, Jesus is the exemplary man in Psalm 1. The man that loves and meditates in God's word in the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening. He is that perfect example of Psalm 1. And he fulfills Psalm 2 as the great king on the holy hill. Jesus, the God-man, was righteous because he perfectly loved and perfectly kept the Mosaic Covenant. The only man who ever did that. And he did it perfectly. As the perfectly righteous man, he went to the cross of Golgotha, the place of a skull. Why? It is true he died that we might be with him forever in the eternal regions of splendor and purity. It's true. He died so that we might go to heaven. But you have to realize that between the moment that resident takes up place in your heart, there's a life to live until we get to the glories of the kingdom. That life doesn't save us, but God can use it to save others in the sense that we tell them and we model what Christ and his love does to people. Well, why did he die on Golgotha, the cross of Golgotha? To bear his father's hatred, wrath, and outrage for our iniquity. 
But in the greatest act of righteous love, Jesus died to pay for the penalty of our hated iniquities. See, if we, had, if we really had a good view of God, the thought that he would hate us in our sins should make us say, where do I get help? Well, how do I deal with the fact that I'm damnable? That's why we have a gospel. It's good news. Jesus Christ died to cover us with his righteousness, taking all his father's hatred for our hated sins. He loved his father and he loves us. His love is beyond our comprehension. We can just stand in wonder and in awe that God loves us and that we are righteous in his righteous kingdom because of Christ, the God-man, Christ, the kingly priest and the priestly king. We did esteem him stricken and smitten of God and afflicted, says Isaiah. But he was wounded for our transgressions. That's when the word substitution emerges and it's beautiful. How is it that God can pardon us? Because the debt has been paid in the life of Christ. The shed blood washes us clean. Oh, the great high priest. He is both the offering and the priest that offered. Jesus hated our iniquity. The Father hated our iniquity. And the Holy Spirit hated our iniquity. Aren't you delighted that he didn't say to us, you made your bed, lie in it. Because our bed would have been hell. He didn't do that. Jesus took it all upon himself. Glory to God. That should make us love God. And it should also make us love all those that he loves. One another. That's what John tells us in his first letter. He goes on, the, the prophet Isaiah goes on. He says, he was wounded for our transgressions. Transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, that dreadful cutting of those whips, we are healed. Jesus so loved righteousness and so loved us that he was willing to die for our hated sins. By that mighty act, he secured a full and free salvation, which is obtained by grace through faith in him alone. God declares us righteous when we repent of our sins and believe on the Son of God. Now, can we become righteous by our own strength? No. By our good works, by our best works. No. In fact, we don't have to do this, but we could all stand up and shout, 
No, not my works. All his. Maybe we'll try that sometime. But he says, therefore, by the deeds of the law, Paul writes this, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. None will be declared righteous. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God without the law or apart from the law is manifested. The law is righteous. But we can't use it as an instrument to be saved because it stares at us with an icy cold, keep me perfectly. Oh, there's a righteousness apart from the law that is manifested. That means it's shown. How and where is it shown? The gospel of Jesus Christ. It's, a, it's unto all and upon all them that believe. Now, that's the issue. Some of you here don't believe this. Some of you don't believe this. The greatest gift of all, free salvation by faith in Jesus Christ. And it's a transforming salvation. It takes me out of what I used to be and is making me more and more in the image of Christ. How's that possible for weak, feeble people like us? That resident, that unction, that anointing that God gives. Well, now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested. We hear it. We see it in the gospel. We see it in the life of Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection. It's witnessed by the law and the prophets, the Old Testament scripture. There it is. Christ is there in the Old Testament. Oh, and he's in that treasure chest called the Psalms. And we can find him here and there. It's hard for us to understand the New Testament without the Old. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Being justified Freely, listen to that word, freely. You can't buy it, you can't earn it. But you can change your mind about your sins and believe him. Oh, may the unction that sprouts forth in repentance and faith fill this place. Well, we are justified freely by the grace, His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. As the hymn says, Jesus paid it all. All. All to Him I owe. His works are perfect. His righteousnesses are perfect righteousnesses our best righteousnesses are filthy rags you don't want to depend on your works but your works that follow that glorious embrace of free salvation talk about 
whether you know that Christ or not. You're not saved by your works. But it's the growth of Christ and his commands to us in our lives that says to people, there's something different about these people. They may even hate you for those differences that they see. Jesus was a perfect man, and they killed him. The people that were expecting the Messiah. They didn't know him. Well, it says, finally, that redemption that we have comes in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. Jesus is the appeasement. He is the sacrifice that turns away wrath. The one who's seated at the Father's right hand. The one who created all things. The one who sustains all things. The one who is the brightness of his glory. And all of those glorious seven things that are set before us in the very beginning of this letter. That's the one. And some of the Jews were wanting to go back to Judaism. Jesus loved righteousness, loves righteousness, hated iniquity, and hates iniquity. And his love caused him to do something about it. And our lives should look the same. Won't be perfect. We stumble, we teeter, and we totter. But there's an onward desire to walk with him and be like him. That's what a new heart does. That's what that spirit dwelling in your heart moves you toward. So finally, our last application. This is number three. Jesus, our righteous king, governs all things. And we will rule with him. Not only was he anointed, and then he anoints us. He's ruling all things right now. And will gather us to him to rule with him. It is amazing. When we understand what we are in the eyes of perfect justice. I'll repeat that. When we understand what we are in the eyes of perfect justice. We would be happy just for God to declare us righteous. Isn't that right? I mean, just pardon me of my sins. I'll be delighted. Wash me of my filth and the hatred that I manifested toward thee. If you'll just forgive me and just give me some, give me a square foot of heaven and I'll be glad. It's far more than that. It is far greater than that. It's far more beautiful and stunning than that. But God's plan for his people is far, far beyond our comprehension. I I don't know about you, but when I read of heaven, when I read at least and I I try to understand all the symbols and the things that are in Revelation, my circuits start blowing. I, I have trouble imagining it. But we will see something 
that will make us think like Paul. I saw things that can't be uttered. It's not going to be a slightly better version of this. It's, it's not going to be Disneyland without the flaws. It's going to be something that our minds cannot comprehend in this world. But it's coming. And you ever get tired of saying, or you might get tired of hearing, we're a day closer to that. Amen. We are a day closer to that. An hour, a second, a minute. Well, no doubt, to their astonishment, Jesus said to his disciples, <clears throat> Behold, this is Peter again, Behold, we've forsaken all and followed thee. What shall we have therefore? And Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that ye which have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, ye also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now how do you think that sounded to a fisherman? How do you think that sounded to a tax collector? Utterly hated and despised just for breathing the same air as people. What? What do we get? We reign with him? We're going to judge with him? Jesus used it <clears throat> to mean that astounding time. The word regeneration there is not in the sense that we speak of the new birth. There's one place in the scripture, in Titus, where regeneration is pointing to the new birth. But Jesus is talking about a different new birth. He's talking about the new heavens and the new earth. God will renew or he will make all things new. This will be the time that is prophesied in Isaiah 65, 17. For behold, says the, the, the prophet, look, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered, nor come to mind. Praise the Lord. And in Isaiah 66, 22, the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, shall remain before me, saith the Lord. There's coming a heavens and an earth that are not like the one we're in now, that can be, that's waxing old as the other garment and be folded up and put aside. It will be a new and a glorious existence. John saw its fulfillment in his heavenly vision recorded in Revelation. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away and there was no more sea. So Jesus was talking about the time of the cosmic renewal of the created order. The consummation of God's kingdom of glory. In other words, Jesus was speaking of eschatology. The last things. And in this context, he was speaking of the eschaton. Meaning the last thing. The consummation of the kingdom. And it will be perfect. And it will be glorious. It won't be in a rut. There won't be any voting. We're all going to be happy to be with the sovereign. 
the king who tells us everything. But we'll want to be there and we'll want to walk the way heavenly people walk. Oh, Jesus was reaching back into the words of the prophet Daniel who spoke of a time when the ancient of days did sit whose garment was white as snow and the hair of his head like the pure wool. Wait a minute, does that sound familiar? Yes, first chapter of Revelation. His throne was like the fiery flame and his wheels as burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from him. Thousand thousands ministered unto him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The judgment was set and the books were opened. We're a day closer. And you're in those books. You're in the book of life or you're not. What a library. The list of our lives. I'm thankful that there's some blood that erases everything that would have condemned me. The Lord. Same with you. Oh, the books were open. Well, we could go on. But <clears throat> it seems that the disciples will be judging the unbelieving portion of Israel. Jesus said, you'll be judging Israel <clears throat> they believed Israel did not they would say our Messiah came we embraced him you have not he preached to you he preached the greatest sermons ever preached he you saw miracles and you crucified him or you simply wouldn't believe him I don't know what it'll be like I know that all of us will be stunned in that day. But it isn't just the disciples. Paul said to the Corinthians, do ye not know that the saints shall judge the world? A common saying in our day is looking at someone and saying, you're not my judge. The day will come when we will be. With Christ. Christ prophesied this astounding event in Matthew 25. When the Son of Man shall come in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then shall He sit upon the throne of His glory. And before Him shall be gathered all nations and He shall separate them one from another as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. The image of a throne is one of the most suggestive and powerful images in the Bible. A throne by its very nature means authority, which by nature we hate, unless we have it. Oh, he will separate them as a shepherd divideth his sheep. This is stunning. Well, a throne always speaks of authority. It speaks of majesty. It speaks of splendor and rule. Sitting on the throne of his glory means that Jesus will be ruling as the triumphant conqueror, the omnipotent king, 
and the all-knowing judge of the universe, displaying all the attributes and perfections of Almighty God. There won't be any arguments about whether he existed or not. So, as he will shine forth in all his regal radiance, magnificence, and grandeur, we will be reflecting his light. Here is our righteous king. And there is his righteous kingdom in its consummation. We're all going to be there. But there will be the great separation. Those who have received the king by repentance and faith and wearing his robe of righteousness. And those who would not have him. Oh, if you do not know Christ today, I tell you on the authority of this book, he saves those who repent of their sins and come to him by faith alone. Come. Come. We're a day closer to that great day. So, dear unbelievers, flee to this righteous king and dear believers in Christ, let us live in the light of his return. Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. With all our hearts, let us serve our righteous king in his righteous kingdom. To his everlasting glory and to our good. Amen. Oh, Father, print thy truths upon our hearts. Save the lost and fill thy people with that glorious resident, that unction, that anointing, and help us to walk with thee in the love of thee and in the love of one another. And we ask it in the name of Christ. Amen. We are going to have the Lord's Supper.